Hello and welcome. You're listening to an audio presentation by Hamilton Adventist Church. Some of you have come along because you know that this is part two of part one that you heard a few weeks ago. And uh, one thing I didn't, <coughs> pardon me, I didn't admit a few weeks ago is that I hadn't actually finished preparing part two. Uh, so it's, it's, now, it's now finished. Um, but for those of you who were, were here a few weeks ago, you'll know that we were looking at assurance, the assurance of salvation and the privilege that we have of knowing that we are saved. And maybe you, you have some questions about that. Maybe you have read some things or seen some things that you think, well, maybe I can't know that I am saved. If that's where you're at, I encourage you to, to buy a book. Uh, you, can, you can get it from, from Amazon, um, written by an Adventist author. And it's called, Should We Ever Say, I Am Saved? And it goes through a lot of scripture, a lot of spirit of prophecy quotes, looking at both sides of that question. Should we ever say, I am saved? It's a beautiful book, and it will bring you to a a beautiful conclusion. Our, Our conclusion that we came to last time was that we can actually know that we are saved. But when, when we do know that we are saved, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what Christ has done, it completely changes the way we live, completely changes a lot of things in our lives. We also looked last time, I'm giving a quick review of the last one in case you weren't here, we looked at whether blessed assurance is blessed assurance or blessed insurance. Okay, and we went through that and we we saw that if it was insurance, then we would be always worried about, am I doing enough? Am I obedient enough? Am I vegan enough? Am I giving enough? Am I, (laughs) I joked about the vegan bit. Um, (laughs) But you know, we're always wanting to, we would always be trying to make sure that our policy is up to date just in case we died and our policy wasn't up to date. But it's not about the blessed insurance. It's about the blessed assurance. And we looked at a heap of beautiful verses uh, that, that show that to us last time. One of them, of course, is uh, John 5.24. I may even have it up on the screen. Let me see how we go. There it is, John 5.24. Most assuredly, there's the word. You can, this is guaranteed. This is an assurance. I say to you that he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed, so has passed from death to life. We can know that our eternal life has begun because of what Jesus has done for us. And it was actually Jesus who said that. And uh, it's, it's beautiful as we dwell on this and begin to understand it more and more. I have a coin in my hand. It's a very special coin. It was found last night by some friends of ours who are staying with us. I, I put on the table in front of them, a, a, I don't know how many coins there were. Did anybody count them? <laughs> kilos, kilos of coins from all different countries. And I said to them, I want you to find a coin that talks about law and grace. So it's two-sided. On one side, it's got to talk about law and obedience and works. And on the other side, it's got to talk about faith and grace and love. And there were all sorts of coins that, that were handed in. Maybe what about this one from this country or this one from this country? We ended up agreeing on a coin from New Zealand. It's a, I don't even know what size, it's a 50 cent coin. It's about the size of a 10 cent for us. On one side, it has the ship Endeavour. Remember 1770, Captain Cook came out here in the Endeavour? 
And according to a, a definition of endeavor, a dictionary definition, it's to try hard to do or achieve something. Okay, the endeavor. We try hard to do or achieve something. Faith, it's, sorry, works, obedience, all, following the law. We try hard. We endeavor to do our best. The other side of the coin has the royal head on it. And who is our king? Jesus. It's about faith. It's about grace, about mercy and love that our king shows to us. Two sides of the one coin. I find in Christianity that we often get into arguments because we, we spend more time looking at one side of the coin than the other. And so I'll be talking to you and you'll say, but, but the law is so important. And I'll say, no, but grace is so important. And then the, and the next week we'll come along and I'll go, yeah, grace is really important. And you'll come along and you've read some other verse and you go, well, yeah, but what about works? And we go backwards and forwards looking at two different sides of what is really one coin. The character of God encompasses law and grace. In fact, Calvary is where law and grace kissed. It's where they came together. And we saw the beauty of the character and the love of God, where the law and the grace came together. So last time I shared, we were looking at one side of the coin. We were looking at the blessed assurance. We were looking at the grace and faith and what Jesus has done for us. This time we're looking at the other side of the coin. We're looking at the endeavor side of the coin. Does our faith in God and our resulting assurance of salvation lead us to want to follow God's laws and do works for our Saviour? What do you think? Yes or no? It does, doesn't it? Once we, once we have this assurance, once we have this knowledge of salvation of how much God loves us, we want to do something. It's interesting. Oh, there's a two-sided coin. In a little book called Steps to Christ, we read this, instead of releasing man from obedience, it is faith and faith only that makes us partakers of the grace of Christ, which enables us to render obedience. Isn't that interesting? Without faith, we can't be obedient. Two sides of the same coin, both very important. Does our, our faith and our assurance make us want to war earnestly to fight hard against our faults. Does it? It does. When we know what Jesus has done for us, we don't want to hurt him. We don't want to disappoint him. And we fight hard to try and fix those things in our lives that, that might call him pain, cause him pain. Faith and assurance don't cancel obedience. Remember, as we saw last time, faith is not an opiate but a stimulant. It doesn't put us to sleep but it actually wakes us up. Here we see it in Our Father Cares. Faith is not an opiate, but a stimulant. Looking to Calvary will not quiet your soul into non-performance of duty, but will create faith that will work, purifying the soul from all selfishness. Isn't it beautiful, these both sides of the coin? Very, very important that we see both sides. Last time we also looked at the fact that true faith will not cause us to rip off our employees or our colleagues because we say, oh, well, they're, they're not saved anyway. Uh, it won't cause us to waste money because, well, I, I've got an eternity with, and I'm going to be walking on gold. It won't cause us to waste time because I've got an eternity ahead and I don't need to worry about what I do with my time here. It won't cause us to destroy the planet because, hey, it's all going to burn anyway. That would be faith as an opiate. But faith is a stimulant. 
faith stimulates us to better relationships, better stewardship, better, rela better um, caring for our planet. Here you can see, this is a, an, another message for another day, but the seven T's of stewardship. Once we understand whose we are, who owns us, then we relate very differently to how we spend our time, our talents, our treasure, our temple, our body temple, how we care for our body, our territory, the land around us, the world, our tribe, that's our relationships, and our testimony that God has entrusted to us. All of those are affected when we know that we are walking with the Lord and that what he has done for us. I want to take you to a, a place uh, as, as a little bit of an example, a place called Ethiopia. You know, the Ethiopian church has had a strong Christian presence ever since. Can anybody guess when it might have started, that Christian presence? Let's go to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, if you've got your Bibles there. Acts chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts in the New Testament. So this, this area of Africa, also known as the, the ancient kingdom of Cush, you can see it there, uh, in, marked in red. Don't you love those old maps? Remember the days when tech, that was high tech, that map? You know, I mean, you'd come to church and someone would put up a map like that and go, whoa, you must have a really powerful computer to be able to do it with only 200 pixels. <laughs> so, the, so there's the, the old kingdom of Cush. In Acts 28, let's start reading in verse 26. Sorry, Acts 8, 26. Yeah. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So you can see up here Jerusalem, and there's a road going down south below Jerusalem towards Gaza. He says, Go to that road. Um, this is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, had who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. And it's interesting that he's come to Jerusalem to worship. So he already had some sort of faith, uh, whether he was a Jew serving down in Cush uh, with Candace, we, we don't know, but he had come to Jerusalem to worship God. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. So when did this happen? Well, this happened just after the stoning of Stephen in the previous chapters. And so we're looking probably somewhere like four, five, six years after Jesus has gone back to heaven. So he's gone into Jerusalem just a few years after the crucifixion and the ascension, and he's probably heard some very interesting things there about Jesus. And now he's reading in Isaiah, he's reading in Isaiah 53 about Jesus, some prophecies about Jesus. So it's quite likely that some Christians in Jerusalem have said to him, hey, you've got to read this chapter. This, this is the Jesus who's just been crucified and gone back to heaven. So he's starting to learn more about Christianity. And the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And then it talks about what he read about Jesus from Isaiah 53. And if we go down to verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. And you'll know the rest of the story. He preached Jesus to him. The eunuch says, I want to be baptised. Here's some water. The eunuch got baptised. The eunuch kept heading south to, back towards Cush or Ethiopia. And Philip 
disappeared and went another way. And it says in, at the end of verse 39 that the eunuch went on his way rejoicing because he had this, this knowledge of Jesus, this newfound knowledge that he was going to take back to Ethiopia. It's interesting, if we go across to uh, Isaiah 55, so you can, you can imagine the, the Ethiopian eunuch continuing on his way with his retinue, reading through Isaiah 53, and then getting into 54, and then getting into 55, and just getting more and more excited as he begins to understand for the first time about Jesus. And he'll get to 55 verse 12. Oh, let's go 11 to 13. He's rejoicing and he's reading this. And he says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. He's getting excited about what he's reading. But then he gets into 56. And I can just imagine, and I, I'm just guessing this now, but by the time he gets to a few verses into 56, he must be so excited that the Lord is speaking directly to him, to his heart. 56 verse 1, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Remember, he's going home to Ethiopia to reveal this new truth. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Keep an eye on that word Sabbath there. We're going to learn something interesting about the Ethiopian church. Verse 3, do not let the son of the foreigner, remember he's a foreigner, who has joined himself to the Lord, he's just come back from Jerusalem, speak saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree, for thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name. Can you imagine reading this, this eunuch, as he's traveling back, he's just been baptized, and two chapters later he's reading about himself, and, and the Lord is giving him a direct message saying, you can be part of my household, even though you're a foreigner, even though you're a eunuch, even though you're not from Jerusalem, I'm going to give you a name. Remember that eunuchs, that's the end of the name. There's no more name. There's no more family name after the eunuch, because they can't have children. But I'm going to give you a name, he says. Uh, verse 5, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Isn't that beautiful? I can just imagine that guy being so excited about it. Well, one of the interesting things uh, about this area, let's see if we can get a few photos here. So you can see here, this is uh, Jerusalem up here. He would have travelled south, either across the water there or around this way probably, and down the Nile all the way back to Cush, which is, this is Sudan today, North Sudan. Ethiopia is just here, and this, and this whole area used to be called Cush. We're going to show you a few photos from up here at Meroe. Uh, this is Khartoum, where the blue and white Niles come together. Uh, and I visited there a number of years ago. Here we go, a clearer version. We drove in a four-wheel drive from Khartoum up here across the Nile, 
up across the desert to this area here. And I'll show you a photo from about here on these mountains. There's not a whole lot of trees there. You could probably call it the Eastern Sahara. It's incredibly dry. Here we are up at Meroe, at the head or the, the, the centre of the Nubian Empire, and you can see pyramids, just like the ones in Egypt, but a whole lot smaller. And this temple here, uh, underneath a, a great mountain, where the Egyptian pharaohs would actually come and be anointed maybe, knighted, I don't know what you did to pharaohs, but make, made pharaoh, that it happened right here in the Nubian Empire. An, an empire almost as great as the Egyptian Empire, if not greater, depending on which historians you're reading. So this is all in this area. Now, bringing it right up to last century, 1935, a Catholic newspaper called El Debate out of Madrid said this, uh, a Catholic priest writing this, he said, with all this, they, that's the Ethiopian church, which still exists today, by the way, the Ethiopian church, have preserved many of the practices of the primitive church, which we Catholics have abandoned. For example, abstinence from the flesh of strangled animals, immersion in baptism, the rest of the Sabbath, and the celebration of the Agape feast. Isn't that interesting? The eunuch that Philip witnessed to took those messages about baptism and the Sabbath and all the rest back to Ethiopia. And 1900 years later, when this newspaper is being written, many in the church in Ethiopia were still doing those things. They were still worshipping according to the, what is called the primitive church, which is the church of Peter, Paul, John, Philip, the church that Jesus founded. Now, if we have a look, it's a little bit hard to see there, but as I was walking around on those mountains in the desert, I was absolutely amazed at the petrified trees that are lying there in the desert. Some of these trees are, from here to the wall long, a single trunk of rock wood just lying there on the sides of the hills. At some stage, we know from historical records, the Sahara had lots of forests around that area. We know that the Romans used to go there and cut down trees to do a lot of their ships and, and buildings from that part of the world. But there's an interesting thing that has remained today. And, you know, we're talking about obedience. We're talking about maintaining the practices that we know Jesus wants us to do. And we've seen the Ethiopian church maintaining the Sabbath and baptism by immersion and a number of other things. But what's really interesting is the way that the churches care for the environment. In Ethiopia, there are these little islands of green in the desert. There's 35,000 of them, little islands of green. And in the middle of many of them, a church. They knew that they needed to care for God's creation. And so the church protected the forest around them. They're called the Little Edens of Ethiopia, 35,000 of them where the people have protected and continue to protect to this day the environment. So even in the often overlooked area of environmental protection, we are to be obedient. God has called us to be obedient in all the aspects of our lives that he has shown us in his word what he wants us to do. So how important are our works and our obedience? Remember, we're focusing today on one side of the coin, on the endeavour side of the coin. Let's go to Luke 10. 
Oh, there's a, there's a close up, closer view of another one, another one of these little Edens with the church in the middle. In Luke 10, we have a lawyer who comes to Jesus. Now, will a lawyer know something about the law? They will, won't they? That's what they specialise in. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbour as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Wow. Is this man going to be saved by his works? Well, if that was the only text in the Bible, we would have to say yes. But there are, there's the other side of the coin as well, isn't it? But, but remember, we're looking today at this side of the coin. What must I do to in inherit eternal life? Well, here he says, if you keep the law, you will inherit eternal life. But keep in mind that it's the whole law, loving God and our neighbour perfectly. Interesting. Jesus goes on and, and clarifies how difficult that is to do and how much we need him. In Romans 13, 8 to 10, we, we read uh, Paul writing to the Romans. He says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. Now it's very interesting, the first four commandments you'll know well are about our love for God and the last six are primarily about our love for others. And it's quite easy to judge a person's love for others because you can see, are they murdering? Are they committing adultery? Are they stealing? Are they gossiping? You know, all these things are there. It's quite, quite easy to see whether they are or aren't doing those things. But it's, it's more difficult to see a person's love for God. It's a very personal thing between their heart and God. So the first four are, are more difficult to ascertain, let's say, compared to the last six. But keeping of the last six is visible evidence that God exists. I'm going to explain this a little bit more. So if we, if we keep the last six, it's evidence that God exists. But if we say that we are Christians and we don't keep the last six, then what evidence does that give? What evidence does that give to an atheist? Well, if we, are, if we say that we are Christians but we're not keeping the commandments, then for them that's evidence that God doesn't exist because he can't even give us the power to live according to his commandments. And so they say, well, God clearly can't exist. And in Romans 2, Paul writes about it. He says, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonour God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Whoa. This, is, this law keeping is an interesting thing. If we say that we are of God and we're not keeping the law, then the Gentiles who are watching on are going to blaspheme God. Because they're going to say, well, hey, God clearly is not powerful. 
because the people who say that they follow him are actually doing all these bad things to me or to the world around them. We have to be careful that our witness is a, is a positive one. So obedience is important, not as a way of being saved, but as a way of revealing that we are saved. We've got to get the order right. I'm going to skip a little bit because we're, we've run out of time. Uh, it is totally impossible for us to gain any merit with God through our own good works. I'm going to read that again. It is totally impossible for us to gain any merit with God through our own good works. Obedience and works are the fruit of salvation, not the root. They're the fruit, not the root. We aren't saved because we keep the law. It's the fruit, not the root. Obedience and works are the evidence of salvation, not the instrument of salvation. Our good works reveal that we are saved. They're not the way that we are saved. We've got to get that order right. A faith that is real will also be revealed. If we have real faith, it will be visible. I'm just going to run quickly through a few closing verses. Let's go back to Noah and see whether it was important for him to keep God's commandments. Genesis 6, 9 and 22. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. Noah kept the commandments and he was saved. Was he saved because he kept the commandments? No, he was saved by the grace of God and his faith in that God. He had so much faith that he built a machine that had never been in existence before for 120 years because God said, build it. He was saved by faith, and we read about that in Hebrews. Not by works, but because he was saved by faith, he was obedient. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, talking about all these other people, Noah and David and all, all the people through the Old Testament, 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which so easily ensnares us, or the breaking of the law that so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus did it all, the author and the finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Sort of doesn't talk a whole lot about faith and grace there, does it? It talks about this daily battle of actually saying, Lord, please give me strength today to live for you, to witness for you, to be an example for you, that the Gentiles might be drawn to you, to your love, through my thoughts, through my words and actions towards them. 
And then, of course, if we come down to Revelation 14, we read about the remnant church. We read about God's last day people. And in that famous verse, Revelation 14, verse 12, we see both sides of the coin. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Both sides of the coin are so important. Let's focus on Jesus, where law and grace kissed at the cross. Let's focus on him who has done and is doing and will do everything that is needed for our salvation. Let's keep both of our eyes on Jesus. Paul says it again beautifully. He summarizes it in Ephesians 2. This is our second last verse. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved. There's the insurance, assurance. You have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For the other side of the coin, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, saved by grace, through faith, for good works. And Galatians 2.20, he says it again. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me. It's not me keeping God's laws. It's not me being righteous before him. It's Christ in me. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me.